0: You're listening to the NASM CPT podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT podcast and Facebook live webcast. You're here, and I'm pretty excited today. And this, this is going to maybe kind of bubble over for a few reasons. One is, in part, the guest that we have, and the other is, in part, the topic that this guy's going to be talking about. And I've put out on my, my Instagram stories that we're going to have this guest, several of you, put that uh, countdown timer and saved it, so I hope you're able to log in and see what's going on. But my guest today is Fabio Camana. And we are going to be talking about metabolism and I got to say for personal trainers, people in the fitness industry, one of the more common questions that we get and I think that we don't understand a lot is metabolism. And that's why having an exercise physiologist Fabio here with us today uh, it is going to be a fantastic guest, first of all, uh, a wealth of knowledge. Secondly. way he delivers it i think that you're going to to kind of take fondly too so shout out thank you fabio for being here and tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started with some questions people are really chomping at the bit to get to
1: well thanks for having me and way too kind so you're setting me up i hope i can deliver a little background so as you said i teach at san diego state university and obviously i've been with nasm for seven years now came on board yeah, came on board uh, and I've been involved in education, sort of like with you, and loving every minute of it. So yeah. honored to be part of the of the um, podcast. And obviously, this is definitely trying times. So I think this is a relevant topic. So I hope I can give some valuable information.
0: Excellent, awesome. Well, let's uh, let's start off. <laughs> uh, I guess for you, what would be an underhand pitch here for at least a, a simple version of a very complex topic, which is, what is it? What is metabolism, and what are some of the purposes of metabolism?
1: Well, without metabolism, you can't survive. Okay. It is it is the engine that basically keeps our body alive. So when we typically talk about metabolism, we can kind of compartmentalize it into silos where we have the energy that's primarily needed just to keep our body alive and I'm talking about alive, is non-functioning, just physiologically alive, but not doing any tasks. That would be our what we call our resting metabolic rate. And for the average human, that amounts to about 60 to 75% of all the calories you burn in a day. Okay. Can that be influenced? Absolutely. It can be it can be upregulated, it can be downregulated, and I'm sure there'll be questions on that today.
0: There already are.
1: We look at the other two kind of silos, we talk about this idea of the thermic effect of food, which is the energy cost of chewing food, swallowing food, digesting food, absorbing food, and storing food. It's about 10% of our calories. And there are some interesting ideas there that can we boost that somehow. And again, if, we, if there's a question directed to that, we can get into that little piece too. And then the last part, which is kind of where the, the kind of realm of personal training excels is this concept called TEPa, which that which is an acronym for the, the thermic effect of physical activity. So that would be energy expended in exercise, but it's much bigger than that. It's also the energy expended through movement. So we've seen all these ideas about you know what does it take to lose weight? Do we need exercise or can we move? Well, this TEPa portion, which is highly variable, it could be anywhere from as low as 10 to 15 percent of your calories. It could be up to, for example, in a total front cyclist it could amount to 80% of the calories in a day. and But the interesting area there is what's also included in that tepe is this concept of NEAT, the word that has relatively short tenure in personal training, but it's really non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And Rick, that would be the energy that you're expending right now, just fidgeting, moving around, kind of reaching back for your cup of coffee, whatever you're doing. And it's really energy expended 16, 17 hours of the day, your waking hours. And believe it or not, that can be quite significant if you just get up and move.
0: All right, so I like this idea, and we've had a conversation about this previously, where there was a difference between um, kind of everyday physical activity and exercise. And it's surprising, actually, that we, we put so much stock into what exercise is and how many calories are burned but it seems like there may be more to just regular movement and physical activity or I guess when it's all said and done, less sitting down. Um, and, and that can actually burn more calories throughout the day than can a very intense single bout of a limited exercise up to up to an hour. We, we tend to burn more activity, more with daily activity versus kind of this burst um can you speak to that a little bit and then also speak to some information that shows uh if you have it or are familiar with it what if people do sit all day and the only real movement that they do is that one burst like they get up early in the morning they go to class but then they sit all day long go home sleep things like
1: that yeah a very loaded question so let me kind of uh, let me kind of digest parts of it at a time so (laughs) <laughs> the idea is this, and it's been something that I've been, you know, not myself, a lot of people have been preaching for a while, which is really getting trainers to, in essence, rethink the way they train and retrain the way they think. Because you're absolutely right. The predominant mindset of a fitness professional has been, I'm going to help transform your body, and I do it during the time that we're together. Mm-hmm. And that's inside that brick and mortar, during that time, quarter, two, three hours that I have you during a week to exercise you, to train you. But the reality is when we start looking at exercise calories, you know, the average American, when they're working out, is expending less than 500 calories in a session, right? Yet we have this goal of, I need to lose two pounds a week. And God forbid, we want more than that, but that's the high end of what's considered to be reasonable. So if you put it in perspective, you know, we always use this concept of 3,500 calories as a pound. Well, if I was trying to aim for two pounds in a week, that means I need to create this deficit in essence of 7,000 calories, however, I get it. Well, great. So, what's the exercise component of it? Well, if the average American is only expending 500 calories at best in a workout, that, and you're working out three times a week, well, now you've just chipped away 1,500. You've still got another 5,500 calories to go. Right. And so, we've been seeing that, you know, for many years that exercise, where people say, well, why am I not losing weight when I exercise? So we get some people that are in that in that court, and the reality is they're just not expending enough calories. But then we get these other people say, wait a minute, I started exercising and I started losing weight. And that really has been attributed to what we call a domino effect, where when you start developing self-efficacy and you start enjoying the experience of exercise, it starts to have a domino effect which spills over to other facets of your life where you start to become more conscious about what you're eating, your portion size, maybe snacking. And it's basically an investment to your overall healthy behaviors. And so when we look at exercise as a standalone to weight loss, it's usually not going to be a driving factor of success. It's the collaborative effect of all those other changes that you're making. So that led people many years ago, and I say many years ago, this started about 2008, 2009, when we started looking at what really is the front line or the frontier of weight loss. And they started looking at exactly what you're talking about. This idea that, you know, we're awake for, give or take, 16 hours of the day. And yet you've got that person who goes to the gym one hour, maybe several times a week. So we'll give you three hours there. But the question is, what are you doing the other 110 hours of your waking hours in that week? Well, the idea is, like you said, most people are sitting their butts. And so we saw researchers so probably in no particular order, but some of the landmark studies that were done around that 2008-2009 2000, 2000, uh, period was a massive study by Kazmarzik and his colleagues, and then another one by Levine at the Mayo Clinic. Now, Levine was simply looking at this idea of non-exercisers who had high and low BMIs. And he was curious. He says, all right, so you're not exercising, but how is it that you're lean and you're not lean? Is it genetic? So he ruled out all these variables and he got a a sample population and he put these designed these special suits all sorts of accelerometers and kilometers, and he said go live your life and what he noted when he was collecting all these data points is that the people that were lean were on average moving around about 150 more minutes a day wow they were getting out of their chairs standing and moving and that amounted to about 352 calories a day which if you extrapolate that over a year is almost 37 pounds And that So if you think about the standing workstation that we now see very popular in the workforce, he was the pioneer of it. He pioneered that concept. I mean, you and I as corrective exercise people know we've been trying to get people to stand for so long because we know how bad, how detrimental sitting is to posture. But it never resonated with people until until Levine showed us, listen, if you can stand, you can lose weight, right? And so all of a sudden people are standing. So we got the message across. Now, another great study by Kazmarzyk looked at following 17,000 people for a period of 12 years. And they're looking at a simple correlation. Is there any link between the number of hours you sit and your mortality? And they found regardless of how much exercise you do, the more hours you spend sitting, the sooner you die. So theoretically, you and I should be standing as we're doing this, this uh, discussion. And they looked at changes, like they looked at um, levels of insulin sensitivity, they looked at uh, lipoprotein lipase, which is a enzyme that sits outside cells, that helps the transfer of of fat molecules in the blood into the muscle cell or into the fat cell. And as people became more sedentary or spent more time sitting, the enzyme activity increased at the fat cell, which is unfortunately detrimental to your health. So they looked at a lot of biometric markers and they found that simple correlation that the takeaway was that the benefits of exercise generally for most people are not enough to outdo the volume of hours that we spend sitting. And so the idea has become, you know, when we talk about sitting is the new smoking, it's all been manifested out of these studies that were initiated, what do we got, 12 years ago and published, you know, so Levine and Katzmarzik published their data in 2009. And this idea of, you know, how neat are you? You've got to find more ways to move around through the day because at the end of the day, if you're trying to boost your metabolism, you know, for you and I who love exercise, we're we'll willingly carve out some time and we'll go to the gym and we'll go do our exercise because we are, we find exercise appealing. We find muscle soreness appealing. But I always joke with trainers when I'm trying to help get the message across, I might think of an activity that you don't really like doing because for the most part, many people don't enjoy exercise. True. To them, it's called identified regulation, which means they exercise because it's a means to an outcome. But that time that they commit to exercise, they'd rather do something else. And so this idea, I say, think of something you don't like to do. And I say, Rick, you've got to carve out an hour every day to flush your teeth. I'm asking you to find more time to flush your teeth, an activity you don't like doing. I'm assuming I'm just kind of going on that. And number two, something that you don't have time to do. So when you don't have the interest or the inclination to do something, why on earth would you want to do it? Yet we as trainers, that's why I said we've got to rethink the way we train. We keep pushing, coercing people that exercise is the weight loss solution. And the reality is it isn't. It's part of the solution. And and what's also happening in the the realm of personal training is that our value, our opportunity cost is shrinking. People are exercising less, and people are also spending less time in the gym. And I venture to guess things are going to change after we come out of this COVID pandemic. I think there's going to be a shift when we look at the success that online training has had. I think of you know all the home equipment that's now driven through technology, the Pelotons, the Tonals. You might see a little bit of a shift in terms of how people are going to now access their exercise and their exercise resources. So to me, that's been a, a I've been arguing it for a while, but I think now that's more of a necessity for survival, not just success, is that we're gonna to have to revisit how we're going about stuff. And I think as a trainer, if you can actually have more influence, have greater sphere of influence into the other waking hours of the day, you're now gaining more value to what you're offering. So when you say I'm worth $100 an hour, well, prove it to me because price is only a factor in the absence of value. And if I'm spending less time with you and it's shrinking and I see your competition, which is all these online streams that are offering it for a fraction of the price, it's hard for the trainer to justify value. So call yourself a coach and now play I called the other 23 hours. What can you do in the other 23 hours to evaluate your services? Sorry, that. long-winded way to to get around your answer.
0: No, well, first of all, there was a lot of a lot of question to it, so <laughs> I think you handled it uh, beautifully. There are two things in there. One is I do talk to people about the difference between online training and and training in person, and I tell them if you can keep. Your price is the same. That's great, but you may have to increase the value of the service because it's not the same. So I do like that idea that that we we've got to create value in what we provide. And also, I think these provisions are going to last far beyond our current situation. They will, well they will move, and 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 we have to figure out what that looks like. Uh, the other thing to speak to is. Perhaps we now start to minimize for the trainers that are likely doing this a, a bit more than others, but uh, minimize the amount of sitting that gets done in the personal training session. And whether that's sitting around talking or sitting down and just kind of going from machine to sit mach- and sit, machine and sit, then perhaps just some more standing uh, inside the workout.
1: Let me just, okay, if I can't, sorry, I didn't mean to monitor the conversation, but if I can add one more little point. So... In 2008, a gentleman named Hamilton, a researcher, created what's called a metabolic profile. And all a metabolic profile is, is really a, a, a reflective tool, can be used qualitatively. I, can, I also use it quantitatively, where you help a person become more self-aware of how much time they're actually spending sitting through the day versus what they're doing standing. And the idea is just rather than doing an activity log, which is tedious and time-consuming, You know, um, this is just reflective exercise. I'd say, Rick, for example, what time do you typically wake up in the morning? You would say, well, 6.30. All right, what do you typically do in normal times? You say, well, I spend about an hour getting ready for work, and then I have my commute, and then I have, you know, so someone takes you through their day. And what you're doing is just to bring self-awareness to this whole concept is go through their waking hours and create a ratio of how many, uh, what percentage of the day they spend sitting versus what percentage of the day they spend standing. And that's where you start. Then what you do is you look at those sitting activities and think of, are there ways that I can interject, not to find more time, but to change the way you're doing the things you currently do, where I can start to get you to do these activities? So I'm not asking you to carve out more time, but to do these activities in a standing or even better, moving position, because moving is more health, it has more health benefits than obviously standing, but we'll take standing. And you just kind of start there. It's a simple qualitative tool. And I just create a ratio. Hey, you're 70 30, Rick. Let's create some challenges for you. Let's try this once. Can we shift your day to 65:35? I also gamified, I can do points. So I've also created a gamification tool out of it. And we do a points tracking where I give you a negative one point for every hour you sit, positive one point for every hour you stand, positive two points for every hour you move, and et cetera. And then we just total up your points and we give you a target to aim for. So we can do it on percentage ratios or we can do it on points. And it's a great way that trainers can start having influence or sphere of influence in the other waking hours of the day. I
0: love that is there do you have a do you have a template that you use yeah. for
1: is yeah. that, something I, that i'll send it to you i'll send it to you and you can share it with the NSM audience so wow. i'll email it to you after our session it's just basically it's called a metabolic profile i've modified it from hamilton's original to how i use it with points yeah taking looking at the success of what weight watches has had with points and it's just a great way to help promote to do to collaborate on ideation but also to help build self-awareness
0: that is amazing thank you thank you thank you for sharing that i'm i'm really excited to get my hands on that so uh and i'm hoping that some other people will too um i'm gonna i'm gonna just ask a few questions and then that will lead into some of the questions that people have asked but um can can you just quickly brief us on the difference between aerobic and anaerobic because we know that we get we hear about that we know there are Things that we've heard of, like mitochondria and ATP, and there are people out there talking about mitochondrial health and optimization. What does it all mean? How, do, how does that fit into what we do?
1: So I think one of the biggest mistakes, just to start off with, is that most people make the assumption that generally, as the words say, aerobic implies the the, the presence of oxygen. Anaerobic implies the absence of oxygen. And most people are under this mindset or this impression that, we only rely on our anaerobic systems during high intensity exercise. And that, in fact, is the furthest thing from the truth. You are always using your anaerobic systems. For example, you mentioned mitochondria. Mitochondria is the aerobic factories, sorry, the factories where aerobic respiration takes place inside your cells. But just to give you an example, your red blood cells do not have mitochondria, which means they can only produce energy, which they need to carry oxygen anaerobically so you're always using your anaerobic systems but now if i was to ask you rick hey let's do a quick little exercise together all right let's stand up and sit down 10 times all right i would ask you rick when that's done how hard was that on a scale of 1 to 10 you'd probably say well that was probably barely a 1 but if we were to examine how the energy was expended during that little sit to stand 10 times it was probably all anaerobic because the reality is you have to appreciate that the aerobic energy system is a very slow adapting system in other words if you need to generate more energy aerobically, think about where it starts. It starts with ventilation. You're going to have to take in a larger volume of air. That air is going to have to perfuse itself through the membranes into the blood. So you're going to have to deliver more oxygen, which means that the cardiovascular system has to ramp itself up to pump larger volumes, stroke volume, and faster heart rate to the you know destinations that you need it. Those capillaries need to dilate, so there has to be some sort of hormonal or neural stimulation to dilate vessels, bring more blood in there. Then we need all these little carriers to shut all that oxygen into the mu- That all takes time. So we use the word steady state. So when you start doing, you're here and you do any change of intensity. So you go from sit to stand or you get to the gym and you're standing in front of the treadmill, you plug it in and then you decide, I'm gonna start walking on the treadmill. You notice your heart rate doesn't jump immediately. It doesn't, it doesn't go from 60 beats to 100 beats in a fraction. It takes a while. Ramp up takes time. So the we said the aerobic system is slow to adapt. But in the meantime, you're doing work. Well, who, you, who is fueling that work? Well, that's where you're borrowing from the anaerobic system. And we call this an oxygen deficit, right? You incurred a deficit that you're going to have to repay, be it during the workout or after the workout. So the first thing I'd like to say is that we have to appreciate that these energy systems, and there's three of them, one aerobic, two anaerobic, the phosphogen and the phosphoglycolytic, are always working interchangeably. They're, they're never, not like a light switch where what you're either on or off. They're always somehow involved. And any time that the aerobic system is unable to meet the current needs, that could be at any intensity, you're borrowing from the anaerobic system. (laughs) Now, these two systems have always, in physiology, have been looked at as being mutually exclusive. Wow, this is aerobic, it involves fats, and it's it's a modality, and it, it has mitochondria, and this is the aerobic system. Uh, the anaerobic system, which is purely rapid-acting and a limited source of energy, and it does not involve mitochondria, we've looked at them as being mutually exclusive, ex- exclusive, like kind of how cardio and weight training are not the same thing. But right. the reality is, we found that they're actually more symbiotic in nature than they are apart. And so we've seen in the last, well, I wouldn't say the last. I mean, Tabata showed us this in 1996 that when he had his subjects doing high-intensity interval training, they were still getting some aerobic adaptations. And part of the reason we believe is that when you do anaerobic training, the nature of the stress that you're placing on the body, the body doesn't like that degree of stress because it's struggling because this is a very limited energy system. The combination of those two anaerobic pathways are probably good for a matter of minutes. Right? Now, because of that stress, what the body is looking to do is to say, how can I help this anaerobic system? Well, the best thing to do is to try and boost the aerobic system. That's why we do see aerobic adaptations when people do interval-type training. But... Interval-type training, we've always believed it has been specific to boosting all those anaerobic parameters. It does, but there is some crossover. Now, is it optimal? No, it's like if you train for strength, are you becoming more powerful? Well, you're building a foundation to become more powerful because power is strength times speed, but you're not necessarily becoming more powerful. But it's like if you do interval training, are you optimizing your aerobic efficiency? You're helping it, but you're not necessarily optimizing it. If you want to, if you really want to you know, build your aerobic efficiency. It's kind of where NASM is going with our new cardio training, is we're talking about training around VT1 to build that aerobic efficiency. So these two systems are absolutely critical. You know, you're absolutely right. One is essentially the absence of oxygen, one is the presence of oxygen. Obviously, with the aerobic system, we have mitochondria, which are the factories. One of the biggest adaptations we have in training and one of the most critical markers of longevity is mitochondrial density. So keeping high numbers of mitochondria and in turn, increasing the size of each mitochondria. Imagine I could increase the number of factories you have and the size of your factories. I could then get greater output of product, right? Well, what we want, so a, a cell's marker of functionality is really the viability of its mitochondria. And as we age, mitochondria, atrophy, they shrink in size, they shrink in efficiency, they shrink in number and that ultimately leads to cellular death. And so the holy grail of human lifespan or longevity is, how do I keep that same number of mitochondria you have at your age now at say age 100, 110, 120? Because then you'd be able to do the things you want to do and you'd you'd have all those wonderful health benefits. So mitochondria really become the linchpin, right? But it's interesting that it doesn't just take aerobic exercise to do that. Weight training, anaerobic type stuff, all help build mitochondria, but not necessarily the most optimal way. So there was hopefully part of an answer for you right there.
0: Yeah, that was that was a great answer. It was uh, that was that was a home run for me. I hope that was supportive for a lot of people who have that question. Uh, thank you for that. So now here's a question. I don't have the person, but I've got some other questions with with names or at least Instagram handles. Uh, but it says I've heard that on more than one occasion. You're not eating enough to lose weight. Is that a real thing?
1: Yes, that is absolutely a real thing. So imagine, Rick, you you and I decided to go out for a drive. We're driving in this strange part of town that we have no idea. We don't know if it's safe or not. But all of a sudden, we're like, you know, let's drive with a lead foot and get out of town. But all of a sudden, our gas light comes on. What would be the prudent thing for you and I to do? would be to ease up off the pedal, because the last thing you want to do is run out of gas and get stranded in a bad part of town. right. Well, the same way your body biologically is looking for ways to maintain what's called homeostasis, which means its normal function. And anytime the body senses that it's being deprived of energy, we talk about caloric restriction, starvation, long periods of fasting, the body does exactly what you and I would do if we were driving our car. We would take our foot off the gas to conserve energy. Now. When you and I kicked off this conversation, I talked about your resting metabolic rate, how it amounts to about 60 to 75% of your total energy expenditure in a day. Now, that is the biggest piece of the pie. So the easiest thing to do, if I need to conserve energy because you're running out, I just need to take my foot off the pedal and what I'm gonna do is reduce your resting metabolic rate. You can still exercise, but the calories you're gonna burn every hour of being alive are gonna be reduced. How do we do that? Well. In the car analogy, you consciously make a decision and to lift your foot, dorsiflex your foot and take it off the gas pedal. How does the body do it? Well, one of the quintessential hormones we have is cortisol. And what cortisol can do is anytime the body senses stress, cortisol is a natural, one of the natural stress response hormones. Now cortisol is not a bad hormone, it helps you survive. But one of the things it does is in times of starvation, so we've used these generic numbers where we say a woman should never eat below 1200 calories, a man should never eat below 1500 calories. Trust me, it's a generic number. It's not a one size fits all, but that gives you a ballpark. So anytime the body senses it's being starved, right? And this can happen in a short term, like you haven't eaten in 16 hours, right? And guess what? In 16 hours, your liver glycogen tank could be near empty. And that's also a key indicator of starvation because your blood sugar is maintained from the liver. Once you put carbohydrates into the muscle cell, they can never get out. So you have to have blood sugar in order to survive. If you recall earlier, I mentioned how glucose is needed for the red blood cells, right? Because they don't have mitochondria, so they can only feed off of glucose anaerobically. So the liver, the liver is tasked with preserving blood sugar. But if you've gone for 16 hours or you are over time starving yourself, and your energy reserves, primarily the liver first, and then ultimately the muscle stores start to get diminished, the body says, well, I've got to take my foot off the gas. So what we do, the elevation of cortisol can actually go to your thyroid gland, oh, well, via, into the brain, sorry, the hypothalamus pituitary gland, and suppress the production of thyroid-stimulating hormone. That's the hormone that travels. It's the tropic hormone that travels to your thyroid gland to make T3 and T4, which, in essence, rev your engine. They run your metabolism. So you can actually get a suppression of thyroid-stimulating hormone, which in turn will suppress your T3, T4, by as much as 20%. Now, think about it. If your metabolism is 60 to 75% of what you burn in a day, it's quite reasonable that it could be in the range of about 1,000 to 1,500 calories for an average person. Let me suppress that by 20%. So if I just use 300 calories as my example, as your suppression, 300 calories extrapolated over a year is about 31 pounds. So to, the, to the, that, that listener's question, can starvation diets actually impair weight loss? Yes, they can because they can suppress your metabolism because your body, much like you and I would be doing when we're driving our car, is trying to conserve the gas that it has. Right.
0: Okay. Um, so let, let's continue down this vein. Uh, I, I appreciate that. So there are people out there doing exactly this on purpose. So there are these kind of prolonged fasting. Uh, we get a couple of days fast. They talk about um, ketosis and gluconeogenesis right so i don't i don't have what you're talking about but don't worry about it i can create my own can you speak a little bit to ketosis in that as well yeah i
1: mean at, at the end of the day we can still although it's not as simple as this we can still look at this idea of weight loss weight gain as a simple mathematical calculation it's calories in versus calories out if you're intentionally reducing your caloric intake and you are still living your life, well, you're creating that natural deficit. And over time, you will see weight loss. It's just a math equation. But to your point, you mentioned that, what if I start, especially when people are on ketogenic diets or they're doing fasting, we generally see a reduction in carbohydrate intakes, right? And the reality is, what happens to a point, well, your body needs carbohydrates. I mean, albeit that the brain's preferred fuel is carbohydrates, glucose. The red blood cells only have carbohydrates. And then there's other compounds that are only made from carbohydrate sources. We call them glycoproteins that need building blocks to be made from glucose structure. Well, if you've restricted or eliminated your, your, or severely impaired your carbohydrate intake, what's going to happen is your body's going to be forced to make them. Well, there's only one source, if it's not coming from food, where you can, within the body, make carbohydrates. You use the word gluconeogenesis. If you think of the word breakout, the word genesis is to create. Neo implies new glucose, so we're making new carbohydrates. Where do we make that from? Well, we can make it from lactate, right? We can make it from glycerol, part of the the triglyceride molecule. But a lot of it is made from what we call glucogenic amino acids, which are amino acids that can be broken down and converted to glucose, right? Now, this is primarily done in the liver. Now, here's the catch with that. Where's that source of protein? Well the biggest source of protein in your body, 99% of usable protein in your body is muscle tissue. So we get this concept of skinny fat. You've heard of this concept of skinny fat, right? And that's what happens. People actually lose weight, but they don't look healthy because they've actually lost their muscle tone. They've lost that semblance of health. And the impact of that is that it's also compromised metabolism down the road because muscle mass is what revs your engine during the day. Fat tissue doesn't. But here's an interesting one. There's some new research coming out looking at um, muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein degradation through the day. So, most people believe that we only build muscle mass after our workouts. Like, you know, I work out hard and then I take my protein shakes and I get that kind of, you know, Grant Shufield is going to talk to you about. He was you know, researching, talking about how this post-exercise metabolic window is not the first four hours, it's going up to six hours now, right? But what you don't realize is that you actually live your day undulating between muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. So what triggers muscle protein synthesis? It's actually the presence of amino acids in your blood. What does that mean? You've just eaten a protein source. And that triggers an elevation of insulin. And insulin is a very powerful hormone in shutting down at the cellular level muscle protein degradation or muscle protein breakdown. So your day is made up of these undulations where you eat, and then you experience a protein uh, synthesis, and then the amino, the insulin goes away, the amino acids are gobbled up, back to muscle protein degradation, and your day is a series of undulations. Now what we're finding is this: in order to maintain these nice undulations, or to even show optimal, you know, trend upward trending of this 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 uh, this kind of undulating wave, is you need to feed every four hours a good source of protein that gives you, we believe, enough leucine, one particular amino acid that gets to what's called a leucine threshold. Now, here's the problem. If you're fasting for 16 hours, like these 16-8, you're missing that window, which means during those fasting periods, you're actually experiencing a lot more muscle protein degradation. So it comes back to the point. Do we want to adapt smart or do we want to just train hard? We need to be smart, and which means, I get it, people talk about how these fastings have a lot of health benefits. Absolutely, they can improve insulin sensitivity. They can do this, they can do that. Much like people have said in the past, fasted cardio will help you burn more fats. Yes, because of the presence of cortisol, but you've got to appreciate that's not the only thing it does. There's also some downside. So the same thing with these 16-8s, it has wonderful benefits in helping people lose weight. All right, it has wonderful benefits in improving things like insulin sensitivity, All right? But it also comes at a cost that you could be attacking Unwantingly, some muscle protein breakdown. So the smartest thing to do is some of these intermittent fasting is not to fast for prolonged periods, but to reduce your caloric intake, but to make sure you're getting adequate protein through the day on a regular basis. So that's why I'm a big fan of like Christine Baraday's fasting and Mosley's fasting, because even though they are fasting on alternating days, not every day, they're also suggesting offload or deloads of training on those days, but what they're recommending is that you're not starving yourself, you're just doing very small boluses of food periodically through the day, and that's a lot of protein so that you can keep that undulation going.
0: That's fantastic, what great information. Um, That's helpful for me, I have a question for myself, and then I'm gonna get to another question that was asked, uh, and then then we'll kick it over to Greg and have Greg (laughs) discuss some things. One, and this is for me, is about exercise, how does exercise decrease blood sugar without insulin, like eating food, right? So can you just talk me through that? Because that's a, yeah. that what's important to me for understanding as a type 2 sure. diabetic. So I'm curious.
1: Um, I think the first thing to appreciate is that, first of all, understanding the, how the mechanism of glucose uptake into a cell works. I'll be very brief. Think of a key and a lock. Insulin is a key. Because of the fact that cell membranes have a biphospholipid layer, they've got a fat layer on it, Anything that's water-soluble doesn't like fat. So it's pretty difficult for things like amino acids, glucose, electrolytes, and water to pass through a fat membrane. So in essence, what we have to do is open up channels, right? So we need a key to unlock a lock that opens up the channel. Well, on your cells that you have these locks, we call them receptors, and insulin is the key that unlocks the receptor. So there are two ways that insulin works. In certain cells, your liver cells, your muscle cells, and your fat cells, we use this lock and key mechanism. It's called insulin mediated glucose uptake, which means glucose will not go into those cells without the presence of insulin. But as I mentioned earlier, we need glucose to get into your brain. We need glucose to get into your red blood cells. Those are not insulin mediated. They're actually non-insulin mediated glucose uptake. So there's many different pathways by which glucose can actually be taken up into the cell. Now at rest, the muscle cells and the, the um, liver cells use what's called a glute four mechanism, which is that mediated one by insulin. So now you start exercising. And what happens during exercise is given that exercise is a catabolic event. Exercise is all about breaking down stored energy, breaking down muscle tissue, breaking down your stored fats, breaking down your stored glycogen. We call it a catabolic event. That's what epinephrine, cortisol, all those hormones do. Insulin, by comparison, is an antibiotic hormone. Insulin says, no, 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 no. I want to push things into the cell to store them. I'm about building muscle tissue. I'm about building fat stores. I'm about building glycogen. That's insulin's role. So what insulin does is uh, prevent muscle protein breakdown, for example, prevent glycogen breakdown. Well, that would be counterproductive during exercise. During exercise, we want minimal interference in in the ability to break down glycogen. So what the body naturally does is as you start exercising, you actually suppress the production of insulin. So the activation of your fight or flight sympathetic nervous system actually can suppress the production of insulin out of the beta cells in the pancreas. So that way now you're not interfering with this natural process of, hey, I got to break down stored glycogen and make it available. Right. So the question is then then how the hell or why the hell I, I get this question. Why am I drinking a sports drink during exercise? Because don't I need insulin to put glucose into my muscle cell? Because I'm drinking a sports drink that has all my gels that have glucose in it, got into my muscle cell. Well, this is where the muscle cells are very unique. During exercise, they can actually switch to operating off of a non-insulin mediated glucose uptake pathway. So you, during exercise, are going to start doing what? Perhaps drinking and eating some gels, whatever you want to call them. And those are going to actually still allow them to be taken up into the muscle cells through a different pathway that is functioning in the absence of insulin that happens during exercise. Now, some other things that are wonderful during exercise. You mentioned my blood sugar drops. Well, it's a cat and mouse game. The reality is your muscles are using carbohydrates at a rate that's far greater than what you can pre- provide. When I say provide through food and drink, because your GI system is essentially shut down during exercise. Right. That's why you get dry mouth and all those things and water sits in your stomach. So the reality is the muscle cells are using their own built-in stores, but once they start to run low, which could happen, glycogen depletion in the muscle can happen inside of two hours in some people, right? Well the muscles start to now draw glucose out of the blood. Well now the liver is the only other option. The liver says, Ah crap, now I've got to do what maintain blood sugar, because if you don't have blood sugar, you can't carry oxygen. So the liver is tasked with now what? Dumping glucose, but the liver has a very small tank. So it's saying, how on earth can I maintain this blood sugar? So the liver is now tasked with making glucose. So this is where your gluconeogenesis comes in. This is where lactate that might be made is going to the liver, being recycled back to glucose and being put in, so lactate is our fuel. So this is the delicate balance, but ordinarily, especially if you haven't built some stores in your muscle cells or if the liver liver is depleted, you're gonna lose that battle, which means during the exercise workout, your blood sugar could drop, right? It's because the muscles are drawing out faster than what the liver can produce, right? Now, during the acute phase of exercise, that's not necessarily a good thing. But the adaptation that happens as a result of training, as you know this very well, is those little locks I was talking about, that receptors, they upregulate and become more sensitive, which means over time, you can actually get the same benefit at rest of taking glucose into the muscle cells or into the fat cells or into the liver cells with actually less insulin. And that's how a type 2 diabetic wants to manage their disease. They need to improve their insulin sensitivity or reduce that insulin resistance. So that's an adaptation that happens chronically as a result of training. But that hopefully you understand a little bit of what's happening during the actual exercise bar itself.
0: That's wonderful. Uh, thank you for that. And I, I appreciate that. That's that's helpful for me. Um, I think also one of the things to point out is as people are, are exercising, we're trying to figure out what's best do and how best to handle things it's not always it's not always easy to understand the science behind it but we all have heard of the Krebs cycle which I think has kind of gone through some name changes like citric acid cycle and things like that over time but we that ends up creating lactate which which you've spoken about is that correct or lactic acid
1: no so the Krebs cycle does not so you actually yeah sorry I don't know if I interrupt. So, um, the, the lactate can be used. So, this is where there's some interesting uh, uh, research. A gentleman named George Brooks out of Berkeley, California, he's been a pioneer of always telling us, you know, when we wish to accuse lactic acid of being the foe, uh-huh. back in the 1980s, he was telling us, no, 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 it's our friend. And actually, we start to realize what is our foe is not necessarily the lactate, it's the ions that are released anytime you, you split a molecule of ATP. What you don't, a lot of people don't realize is you actually release a hydrogen ion. Well, hydrogen ions are generally taken to the Krebs cycle and the electron, well, to the sorry, electron transport chain, and that's where they are harnessed for energy. But so everyone said, oh, these lactate ions and these this hydrogen ions that are being split, and those are man- manufactured out of the first step of carbohydrate metabolism. It's called glycolysis. So when you look at how a carbohydrate is metabolized in its entirety, in the aerobic pathway, it goes through three steps. Number one is glycolysis. So all carbohydrates go through glycolysis first. The end product of glycolysis is technically still considered to be pyruvate. Now, the fate of pyruvate is in the presence of adequate oxygen, pyruvate can then be shuttled into the Krebs cycle. As pyruvate converted to acetyl coenzyme A, which we don't necessarily have to do much of that, but pyruvate can also be converted to another compound called oxaloacetate. And that helps turn the Krebs cycle by joining it with a, with a fat fragment, and that's how we metabolize fats. So that would be a perfect situation of, you know, how carbohydrates blend nicely with fats, and carbohydrates go through the glycolysis, which is purely anaerobic. Then they go to the Krebs cycle, and make the electron transport chain. Now let's go back to the Krebs, uh, the glycolysis. That is the first pathway of all carbohydrate metabolism. So I'm going to give you an example to help you understand it. Let's say you're running, and your quads are. I'm, I'm gonna make up a number. Your quads are making 10 pyruvates a second. I'm talking about one muscle fiber. But let's say you only had enough oxygen available because of your mitoc- your blood delivery, your blood volume, your mitochondria, whatever you wanna call it. You only had the capacity to handle seven of those oxygen molecules every second going into the Krebs cycle in the mitochondria. So the question is what's happened to those remaining three that are accumulating every second, right? Well, much like an accident on a highway, if there's an accident, traffic stops itself, back itself up, everything slows down. Well, if you start to back up this process, then you start to slow glycolysis, which means you're not making enough energy. Secondly, what's happening is those hydrogen ions that are being made every time you go through glycolysis, we generally make two to three molecules of ATP. Those hydrogen ions are generally cleared to the electron transport chain or harnessing to oxygen. Well, those are starting to accumulate. So now we have some problems. We have an accumulation of hydrogen ions, and we have an accumulation of pyruvates. So one thing the body does, it says, I can take care of this problem temporarily. Let me convert those two products into one product called lactic acid. And generally, lactic acid, we don't define it as existing in the human body. It exists in a chemistry lab, because it immediately dissociates into lactate and hydrogen. Lactate being negatively charged, hydrogen being positively charged. Now, this is where it gets interesting, because the lactate is still a molecule that can harness energy. So it can have various phases. We can actually take it from that type two muscle fiber in your quads that's predominantly anaerobic and we can shuttle it right over to a type one muscle fiber in the same muscle called a lactate shuttle. We can actually take it, so it doesn't even leave the quad. We can just hand it, pass it over to the type one muscle fiber and say, you've got more mitochondria, and you handle this lactate? And then we convert the lactate back to what? pyruvate, and then we can use it as a fuel source or we can dump it into the blood. Now, the lactate dumped into the blood is not a problem because it just joins with sodium or potassium. We take it elsewhere, like to the liver, convert it back to glucose, put it back in the blood, send it back to the quads. It's the hydrogen ions. Now, the hydrogen ions that are mostly originated from that splitting of the ATP molecules, right? And the splitting of of the the, uh, manufacture of lactic acid spitting to lactate, although we think it's more the ATP molecules. accumulation of hydrogen ions becomes the problem and that's where you get into that acidosis because hydrogen ions change the pH of tissue so we generally kick it into the blood and that's where we try and buffer it and this is when we start talking about our vt2 or some people talk about their lactate thresholds that becomes the whole challenge there so lactate actually has a pathway where it has many different fates and the key thing to understand is lactate is friend not foe it's hydrogen ions that become the issue and it's the hydrogen ions from the splitting of atps and we call it metabolic acidosis that generally are the limiting factor when you feel one more rep but the body goes your mind might be saying one more rep but the muscles are saying "Uh-uh, not on my watch i'm done and you get that burning tingling sensation that's acidosis setting in
0: that's fantastic thank you very clear very well done took us through krebs cycle and electron transport <laughs> chain and the fate of lactate so i appreciate that uh, let's look at, uh, another question from SL fitness two, four, seven, ask if it's true that metabolism slows down, um, with muscle loss. Uh, I, I think that, uh, that's kind of been hit on, but I'll let you speak to that, uh, just, just quickly. And we've got a dozen more questions to Yeah add.
1: So I'll be very quick on that one. So keep in mind, you know, the average male 40 to 45 percent of our body weight is muscle tissue average female maybe 30 to 35 percent and that's that amount of muscle mass is the engine you know it's estimated that about a pound of muscle mass you know can burn about seven calories you know just sitting there doing nothing right whereas a pound of fat can only burn about one calorie so it stands to reason that the more muscle mass you have the more you rev your engine so yes at any stage of your life you want to try and build muscle mass because you are, number one, getting a head start because we know the aging process is a loss of muscle. But number two, you're keeping that metabolism running. So, yes, you definitely want to do whatever you can for yourselves and for your clients to build as much muscle mass as you can, obviously within reason, so that you can keep your metabolism, your engine revenue. Okay.
0: Um, what about from DDN Diamond Head? Ask for suggestions about staying fit and keeping metabolism up particularly with individuals that have things like menopause or Hashimoto's. And I think we can also include in that for people who seem to be a bit more um, sedentary now during uh, during this COVID lockdown.
1: Yeah. So the reality is, you know, prior to COVID, we were all training. We were maintaining some semblance of fitness by training with some regularity, with some frequency. The reality is it's changed. Now, what we do know is that, unfortunately, cardio, your cardio benefits that you've attained through your training actually suffer a faster rate of attrition than your muscular skeletal. So generally, cardio needs to be maintained with about two, ideally three sessions on a weekly basis. Strength for the most part, it's lost at a slower rate, but you may be able to maintain it with just training hard one to two times a week. So for most people, they have no, no, no method or no means to train it, which means they're just going for walks. So, yes, they're going to detrain. And I actually wrote an article on Facebook just a little while ago talking about what about those that have suffered some sort of pulmonary compromise? What's it going to take for them to get back to normal afterwards? Because they may have lost mitochondria at an accelerated rate because of their pulmonary compromise. But that's a whole different question. So when we start going through stages of life, we go through a period like we are right now where we've got more sedentary activity. We've got changes happening in our bodies. What can we do? Well, the idea is, I'd say, number one, let's be realistic first and foremost, you know, Trust me, you know, I wish I, w- I was able to do what I could do 30 years ago. You know, train as hard as I could, as long as I could, and as frequently as I could. I can't, I need more time to get myself into the workout. I need more time to recover after my workouts. That's just a, f- a fact of life. So I think number one, we've got to be realistic and accepting everything. Number two, from a standpoint of maintaining fitness, if you can get out there and do your cardio two to three times a week, and the nice thing about cardio, I mentioned earlier about how aerobic and anaerobic are somewhat symbiotic in nature. Is this idea like, well, I don't know if I can go out there for 45 minutes and run because I hate running on the street. What I do is I go down the street here, there's a, there's a parking lot of a school that's empty. so i got a little bit of a slope and I do sprints. Anaerobic interval training right now that can be done in a compressed volume of time can help you maintain those cardio benefits. So you won't lose as much. So you've got to look at what's reasonable for yourself. But if you are looking for a very time efficient way to maintain your cardio, it with some minimal training. If you could do it two to three times a week, that'll probably suffice. Now, weight training a whole different story because you have to have this principle of overload. So you could maintain some muscular endurance because we can do body weight training. You might be able to do some movements explosively so you can keep some power endurance, but the reality is strength losses may happen because most of us don't have access to enough resistance, you know, overload to be able to maintain that. So I would say to you, training in little blocks if you can, we you know that intensity is the number one variable to stimulate adaptation, but frequency is actually another good adaptation rather than duration. So instead of one 30 minute workout, you could do, you know, four seven-minute workouts. And if you can sprinkle those here and there where you can get, you know, be creative and get enough overload, you might be able to maintain or offset some of that muscle loss that you're experiencing during these stages of life. So I'm, I'm obviously, I'm pressing more what's happening during this pandemic rather than Life, life event changes like you know menopause, where there's hormonal changes involved, because that's a whole different conversation.
0: Okay, all right. Um, thank you for that. Well, let's let's move on to to Greg. I know we've got some questions that have just kind of been pouring in. So if you want to to toss over some to Fabio, and let's let's see what uh let's see what's going on out there. Hey,
2: you guys have been impressively impressively efficient at answering a lot of the questions that have come in, but there are a few that uh, that we haven't quite addressed during this. And, and Jennifer wants to know, how do you know if you have a fast or slow
1: metabolism without getting tested? Is there a way to know that? Yeah, I would say for the most part, look at your body shape. So we talk about these words, ectomorph, mesomorph, endomorph. Ectomorphs are generally leaner people. They don't have to be tall. Generally, smaller bone diameter. So it can be a very small, petite woman. It can be a tall, lanky guy. Generally, they have higher metabolism because it's worth them to gain weight. And so you could look at your body shape. So someone who's built more like a brick, more of a mesomorph, is probably going to be more muscular in nature, which means they don't have, they have the capacity of the muscle mass, which can impact their metabolism, but their natural metabolic rates are not going to be as high as an ectomorph. So the ectomorph is going to have the highest metabolic rate, and the mesomorphs and endomorphs are going to have the slowest metabolic rates. You can look at your body shape. You can also look at what sports you've been successful at, because generally we don't gravitate towards sports that we suck at. Right. <laughs> So if I'm, you know, an ectomorph, I'm not going to be a powerlifter. And if I'm a mesomorph, I'm not going to be a marathon runner. So you could, I would say to Jennifer, look at the sports you've been successful at. Look at your body shape. That will give you some inclination as to whether you have a slightly higher or slightly lower metabolic rate. And it also gives you some insight as to what foods, because ectomorphs generally can do very well on high carb diets. right. But keep in mind, aging process, everything slows down.
0: Gotcha. Well, can we connect that back with one of the, the previously stated things, which is if an ectomorph has a, a ramped up metabolism, but somebody that has more muscle may have a slower metabolism? Is that true? And would it benefit? Uh,
1: that's a good question. And the answer is yes and no, because the as you build muscle mass, it raises your metabolism. But remember, the ectomorph is just naturally going to have high metabolism, regardless of how much muscle mass they have okay and mesomorph is going to have is going to have to be going to get to that maybe comparable level but they're going to have to go through this process of muscular adaptation to get there gotcha all right cool
0: well that's one of the reasons i like um like fight sports having uh weight classes so that we can all play the same sport but we can do it within people who are not going to pummel the uh ectomorphs so so uh that that's fair uh what else do we have greg i know we've you know, we've had some pouring in but i also know that He's been knocking them out of the park and <laughs> pitched. Uh, Fabio, okay. you, you,
2: you made me laugh because all I did was play sports that I sucked at. So I apparently gravitated <laughs> towards ones that weren't right for me. But Justin wants to know, how do you eat enough to build muscle and keep up weight with a fast metabolism and busy, active day of work and on being on the go, etc.?
1: That's, that's a challenge. I mean, it is a challenge for... A very active person, but more so active person who's who's also an ectomorph. So, you know, hopefully he loves food and he enjoys eating because he's going to need a surplus of calories, but he's going to need a surplus of protein. So he's training hard. So number one, the calories that the, the calories he's eating must meet at the very least, sorry, must match what he's expending on a daily basis, because that can help starve off any unwanted muscle protein breakdown. So the first thing I would say is to make sure that your calories that you're eating are matching what you're expending. So there are ways that we can kind of quantify how many calories you're expending. Most of them do require some sort of assessment testing, which unfortunately most of us don't have access to right now, but he can look at his body weight over time and just look at a baselining. And then what he needs to do is to increase his protein intakes. Now, a person like that that's maybe concerned about unwanted muscle protein breakdown, granted he's active, some of the guidelines now are talking at the high end of 1.7 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight in protein. So I know that's not terms that are are comfortable for Americans. So I'm getting my calculator very quickly. It's it's going to be about point, let me see, 1.7. So it's about point, let's call it 0.8 to one gram per pound of body weight. We're seeing some, ideas coming out here that, the, that those types of protein intakes are necessary or recommended to help support muscle protein growth. So to his question, just to summarize, make sure you get enough calories, regardless of where they're coming from, to match your caloric expenditure, but then make sure you get enough protein to support the weight training that you're doing to get the muscle adaptation you're looking for. So
0: that, that sounds to me kind of like the, the old school bodybuilding thing that we weren't sure about for a long time, where it talked about... Uh, one gram per pound of body weight. Uh, And now it seems like we've circled back around to basically one gram per pound of body weight. My question that I have is, does that take into account uh, body fat percentage?
1: Unfortunately, in a perfect world, you would be basing protein requirements off of lean body mass. The reality is it's pretty hard to get an accurate assessment of lean body mass. So some of the research studies are just coming down saying we're giving a recommendation off of just overall body weight. So you're absolutely right. A estimation off of lean body mass would be better. But in light of the fact that we don't have those tests, you know, those accurate assessments, we just do it off of body weight. Now, the other thing I'd say to him too is the feeding through the day. If you can get into multiple feedings through the day. So remember I talked about that undulation of protein synthesis. So at least four feedings of protein if you can. Would be recommended. So multiple feedings through the day would be another thing to add to that.
0: Gotcha. And then with the basically the same equations and the same answer go for people who are trying to build muscle and lose body fat at the same time. Is is first of all is it possible, <laughs> and if so, what are strategies that are there?
1: Yeah. So. This was we've seen a lot of the we've seen a lot of interest in the weight loss industry. You know, we're talking about a seventy-plus billion dollar industry.
2: Yeah,
1: we're seeing a lot of interest in protein now because what's been happening? I, I mentioned it earlier today. This concept of skinny fat, and what's been happening in the past is when people were losing weight, they weren't just losing fat mass. So, for example, on a diet alone, a safe estimate <coughs> is that for about every pound you lose, thirty-one percent of what you're losing is going to be lean muscle. That's not that's not something you want. So the whole idea is we want to preserve lean mass while we're losing muscle mass. And so in some studies, what they did is they augmented the diet with greater amounts of protein more than the RDA. So the RDA is 0.36 grams per pound. They were using dosages in at 0.55 to 0.64 grams per pound. And they were finding that the amount of muscle mass being lost was actually, I'm not going to say minimized, it was curtailed. So to your question, can we lose weight and build muscle mass at the same time? Theoretically, yes, it's going to take a lot of strategic work. This is where I think that a dietician might be a nice person to have in the network who can help strategize because it's going to be a lot of delicate balance between expended calories, total calories and protein uh, quantity. And that has to be worked into a delicate balance with the type of protein to so look at the quality of the protein and the timing of the protein. So theoretically, yes. Is it easy? No. Is it something that, that we should be considering in other words, having this nutritional intervention when we're trying to achieve that? Absolutely.
0: Okay, all right. Uh, do, you, do you have time for a few more questions? Yeah. We have gone long. It's been one hour uh, and it's flown by for me. Uh, I hope that people are enjoying it, still popping out some questions. So, Greg, if we have any more, if not, I've got another question, and then we'll, we can we can close it. But if we got more questions, he's good. Why
2: don't you, why don't you take it, Rick, because you guys have actually answered all the other ones that, I, that I've seen come through. So you guys can uh, can roll with yours.
0: All right. So i just – thank you. I just want to piggyback on the last statement. And for a long time also, people were talking about elevated amounts of protein – potentially being bad for the kidneys. Um, and that kind of goes back to the person who's taking their entire body weight, but they may be 25% body fat. So now they're taking, you know, one uh, one gram per pound of total body fat, but not lean body fat. Is that too much protein? Does that create kidney damage or is that not really a consideration or a worry?
1: No, I, I think it's a legitimate consideration. So there's definitely um, – Strong scientific evidence to support that people that are exercising do need more protein. The person who's just a weekend weekend warrior who just goes out on the weekend or is just kind of going to the gym and they're doing their 45 minutes of moderate intensity just to preserve health, do they need more protein? Probably not. So generally, there are guidelines recommended for people that are more recreational versus more vigorous in terms of their training regimens, in terms of how much protein they need, and whether they're doing cardio or doing weight training. The number I gave you of of 1.7 to 2.2 or the 0.8 to 1.0, that was for someone who's training seriously to build muscle mass. The person that's just an endurance runner probably doesn't need as much, and the person who's a recreational exerciser probably doesn't need as much. But you bring up a legitimate point. So what happens to extra protein in my body? Well, two things. Number one, sorry, extra protein in my diet. Number one is the question is whether it's even getting absorbed. So we know that there is terms that we call fast proteins and slow proteins, right? And those have got to do with the transient time that we have in the GI tract before they're absorbed into the blood. For example, a whey protein isolate on an empty stomach could be in your blood in 15 to 20 minutes, but a casein, which curdles in the stomach because it mixes with acids, just like milk does when it sits on a counter, <clears throat> can empty in your stomach in a matter of hours. Right? Could be several hours before it's empty. So. Keep in mind, when you look at your small intestinal tract, there's only a section where you really absorb most of your protein, your amino acids and your dipeptides, which are a pairing of them, or your tripeptides, which is a grouping of three. If you've got too much protein coming out at once, being dumped out of the stomach at once, there may not be enough surface area, given the transient time of stuff moving through your GI tract to absorb it all, which means you took a big dose of protein, but it came out the other end. A slow protein has a better chance of being absorbed into your body. So that's why they give a recommendation that every time you feed, the dosing should be around 0. 0.4 grams per kilogram of body weight or 0. 0.18 grams per pound. So for someone like me, I weigh about 184 pounds. You know, I should be taking in the range of about 33 grams of protein every time I feed. That's considered to be optimal because, number one, it gets me above that leucine threshold. It's giving me more than enough leucine. But it's also not overloading where I'm going to be wasting protein. So if I, my goal is to get 150 pro- grams of protein, I should be spacing it through the day consistently. Now, to your point, let's say that protein does get into your body. And now it's not being used because remember, if protein is put into the body, it serves two purposes. Number one, it replenishes our amino acid pools, which are really small, six to seven ounces in your entire body. But the biggest reservoir of living protein is muscle tissue. Well, you've got to have the stimulus and the functionality, sorry, the capacity to build muscle protein. So we look at your body type, your hormones, your age, your gender, all these things have to play a role. But you're absolutely right. If I get too much protein, Well, what am I gonna do with it? Well, the body doesn't waste. So the body says, listen, we're gonna make this, convert this to something else. Well, what can we store? We can store fats and carbs. So that process requires the removal of the nitrogen group, the amino group off of that amino acid structure. Well, that is the task of the liver. So it does put a little bit of load on the liver, having to do more work. Number two, when you remove that amino group, it forms ammonia, which is toxic. So we quickly convert it to urea. And then the urea is passed to the kidneys, which have to then be passed out in urine. So that means it's putting a little bit of kidney strain on the body. And there's also what? That excess volume of fluid, a little bit of dehydration. So some of the concerns have been around hepatic, renal load, and a little bit of dehydration. However, in most people, even if they're eating a little bit more, like that one gram per pound, our liver and kidneys are resilient enough to be able to to function no problem. But that's not gonna be an accept- that's not gonna be the case for every people. There are people that have histories, people that develop pathologies, that they should be talking to their doctor, their dietitians. So that I would say it's not it's not necessary, probably from a cost standpoint, a a preparation standpoint, because protein, unless you're drinking shakes, is not, you know, it's 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 timely to prepare all that food. And there is a little bit of a health concern. Some people also talk about the health concern about the animal-based amino acids, which are predominant in the male in the American diet, about 85%, tend to be a little bit more acidic in nature, and that may have the potential of needing to buffer it with some calcium pulled out of your bones. Now, that's a highly controversial discussion, and I would not probably want to plant that seed, but I think it's something that a person who has a history of maybe osteopenia or osteoporosis should at least think about if they're going to take on protein diets that are significant that there might be this argument if they're getting most of their protein from animal sources that that acidity could demineralize their bones slightly. But as I said, that's pretty controversial. Some research has contested that. All
0: right. Um, all right. Well, that that has been really amazing. And we've gone from really you've taken us through, weeks, uh, which is valuable. You clearly know what you're talking about. And you've been wildly supportive. And I'm going to say if glucose is what feeds the brain your uptake is incredible because your brain is loaded my friends <laughs> uh, thank you for everything thank you so much in fact that I would I would love to have you back on yeah, sure. uh, at some point and and kind of go over some stuff there there's so many questions that by far uh, beyond what we've just touched on and yet I, I think you've done such a good job that all it does is sparks more ideas and more thoughts so uh, I'd love to have you back on, yeah. and I'd love for you to also just tell everybody where we can find you, right? Like if, whether that's social media or email, if they want to reach out. <laughs> I, I'm
1: in my office in San Diego, so come on by. I'm bored. <laughs> no I'm kidding. Yeah, uh, no. So uh, I'm in my home office, not my not my office office. So I'm home. I'm homebound. Uh, well, obviously, I mean, Rick. First, first, Rick. Rick Thank you guys for having me on the show. It's an honor, and you know, I'm part of the NESM family. So being invited back, I'd be honored. But also, you know, I think the more information we can share with our NASM certified, you know, sort of tribe, I think we're empowering them with the tools that they can be better. So anything I can do to help out, more than welcome. Uh, where you can find me, you know, obviously I, I do, for NASM, I do, I do writing. So right now I'm actually taking a course that Mike Fatagrassi created um, on diets and, you know, kind of eating for your uh, diets and their and the effects on performance. And I'm, going to con- I'm converting it into a continuing education course for us. And then I'm also going to be working on a little bit of the physiology of fat and a little bit of the fat metabolism and stuff like that. So I do some writing for NASM. I post periodically on social media. I just haven't had that much time, so I've kind of got a little lazy on that one. But generally, you can find me, you know, obviously for NASM at conferences like you do, and then obviously writing within the, you know, the brick and mortar of NASM, writing content for for our educated, you know, for education for our candidates and for our certified pros.
0: Excellent. And if you're in the San Diego area and you want some higher education, uh, you can find him at San Diego State University and perhaps win the lotto by having this guy as one of your professors. So, uh, (laughs) Fabio, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. I want to do a shout out real quick. Uh, We've got Greg with some housekeeping. And uh, I want to say that this... Friday coming up, so we do these every Monday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern time. And on Friday, we're gonna have Brad Schoenfeld, who's a wonderful researcher. yeah, right. Uh, Wonderful researcher, especially in the field of hypertrophy. So if you're interested in hypertrophy, and I know you are, uh, are. please 12 noon on Friday, tune in and uh, and get your questions ready for him. Let's go to Greg real quick. Do you have any questions or comments to add housekeeping notes?
2: Yeah, housekeeping notes. Uh, You can join us back here at 1 p.m. Pacific time. I believe that is 4 p.m. Eastern time for another live stream about corrective exercise and Olympic weightlifting. So if you're into that as well, uh, join us for that. It's uh, part one of a three-part series that we'll be doing here on Facebook Live with NASM. So uh, yeah, join us for that.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you so much, Greg. Thanks again, Fabio. And thank, thank you, gentlemen. Members. Thank you, everyone. Um, this has
1: been the NASM Facebook Live webcast and podcast.